In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Bravo Docket. So I'm sure as everyone has seen or heard... Jen Shaw's trial was recently moved from March 22nd, 2022 to July 11th, 2022, with the possibility of it getting moved again. This is not surprising to us. We kind of thought it might happen, especially after it was revealed or put forth that there were two other criminal trials before Jen's, and they deserve to be heard just as much as Jen's, her reality star success doesn't get her an earlier trial date. But we were really looking forward to it. Not that we were looking forward to her being prosecuted, but (laughs) as attorneys and as the Bravo docket, we were really looking forward to covering it for, for all of our listeners. However, that being said, we're still going to give you some Jen Shaw stuff. Angela had the great idea of going through and giving everyone an informed explanation as to what has happened with the other co-defendants in this case. There are 13 total defendants. Jen is one of the 13, and several of them have already been sentenced. All of them have admitted guilt except for Jen. She's the sole woman heading to trial. Yeah, which I, I hope that this gives everyone more context as to what could happen should Jen be found guilty and just a general understanding of the process because it's it's very interesting. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, this episode is going to give you guys a lot of insight that honestly, unless you are criminal defense attorneys or prosecutors, hopefully you don't have because you haven't needed this information. But when a, a defendant is sentenced, there is a lot of information that goes into how to processing that sentence and deciding what it is. And the judge takes all of that into consideration. And you can really see from the sentencing transcripts what the judge maybe gave more weight to and what was persuasive and what helped in some cases get a lower sentence and then what helped in some cases get uh, maybe a bit of a higher sentence. So we're going to go into that because it's really fascinating and you really get a picture of who the people are, how they got involved in this scheme that they've pled guilty to, and how they kind of relate to one another. Right. So before we dive into that, I just want to remind everyone that there are sort of two parallel cases going on in in the scheme, or 
I don't know how to say that. There, there are two parallel cases where the defendants are alleged to have sort of worked together. The first was the Kitabchi case, which I still don't know if we're pronouncing it correctly, but that was fully prosecuted, went to trial, had several defendants plead guilty, and that case is done. But from that case came an investigation that led to this case, which is the U.S. v. Chidi case, which is where Jen is being prosecuted. So we will get into some of those defendants and... There is a lot of talk about them in the sentencing submission, so I just wanted to note that as background. Do you want to get into, like, the law here, the procedure, how this all plays out in court? Okay. Yeah. So in these, just just in this case, just as an example, so the defendants that were charged, they had the indictment, which we've already explained in our previous episodes. And if you're kind of lost on any of this on the underlying charges I definitely recommend going back and listening to our previous Jen Shaw episodes. Um, but when they when you plead guilty, you work out your plea with the prosecutor. But before that, there's typically a proffer of evidence. If you have evidence on perhaps some of your co-conspirators and you want that taken into consideration. Some of these had that, some of them didn't, but that's all procedure before. So you plead guilty. After you plead guilty, the judge sets a sentencing date, and then he'll set dates or she'll set dates for the issuance of the sentencing memorandums. And that's where the government submits a memorandum saying, here's why we think that this defendant should be, you know, in this range of sentencing guidelines and so on and so forth. And then the defendant will submit a memorandum saying, here are are all the reasons why there should be a downward departure from the typical guidelines or here's the extenuating circumstances. And sometimes you even get like a really comprehensive history of the defendant saying, here's everything that led up to the actions that caused this. Here's how the court can be sure they're remorseful. Here's their connections to the outside community. And they'll include letters from family members that are going to support them if they manage to stay out of jail or when they get out of jail. And those things can all be very helpful to the court. So those things are submitted. The court reviews them. And then there's typically an in-person sentencing and you get in front of the judge and sometimes the lawyers will make arguments and then they will let the defendant actually speak. And you'll see in some of these transcripts that we're going to talk about that the defendant speaking on their own behalf can sometimes be incredibly persuasive to the court. Then you get sentenced and the judge will sentence you right then and there. And just so you know, even if it's a plea and you've agreed with the government, the judge doesn't have to follow that agreement. The judge can say, well, I can see the state is recommending this, but I don't think you're actually remorseful or I don't think or I think that these circumstances warrant, you know, more than what the state's agreed is appropriate submission. It has to be absolutely terrifying to go in there during that. And I think, again, when we read from the transcript, you'll see some of that. Yeah, I I feel bad for every defendant when I read those. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Just to touch on the law, and I pulled this from some of the government's submissions. It's not anything that I've learned, but I thought it's good framework. And I apologize for those that don't like the nitty gritty law. But I just wanted to read this. So sentencing guidelines state people should receive similar sentences for committing similar crimes in similar ways. And it's just a guideline to promote fairness in these types of cases. So the court can impose a sentence sufficient but not greater than necessary to comply with the purposes of the statute. The section further directs the court in determining the particular sentence to impose to consider, one, the nature and circumstances of the offense and the history and characteristics of the defendant, two, the statutory purposes noted above, 
three, the kinds of sentences available, four, the kinds of sentences and the sentencing range as sent forth in the sentencing guidelines, five, the sentencing guidelines policy statements, six, the need to avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities, and seven, the need to provide restitution to any victims of the offense. And that's just the overarching things that the court can consider, like Angela mentioned too, and like you'll see in these submissions that we review. So where to next? Should we talk about the defendants that haven't been sentenced yet and just lightly touch on what's going on with them? Yeah. Do you want to run through that real quick? So there's... In the Cheaty case, there's, I think, 13 total. And like Sessie's pointed out, and then as you can see from our Instagram, from the post on it, everyone has pled guilty, but not everyone, everyone but Jen Shaw has pled guilty, but not everyone has been sentenced. So do you want to run through yeah. some of the ones that we're going to, we'll probably do another episode. I mean, probably definitely, because these sentencing submissions are so interesting, but yeah, we'll run through the ones we've got so far. These Co-defendants also seem to be the bigger players, and I'm mm-hmm. a little upset that we don't have their sentences yet. The, the other ones are still very interesting, but so Chidi was tier one. Chidi is the one who the case is, he's, he's the named defendant in the case. So he pled guilty on March 23rd, 2021, and I thought this one was interesting to note because that plea didn't appear on the docket on March 23rd, 2021. And if everyone will remember, Jen was arrested March 31st, 2021. So we weren't able to see that he pled guilty on March 23rd, 2021, until later that year in August when they decided to unseal it. And I'm not out there practicing criminal law, but my instinct is that they wanted it hidden maybe because of his participation that led to Jed's arrest. Do you feel the same way, Angela? I don't know enough facts about Chidi. I know um, Holt definitely seems to have a lot of connections, Ryan Holt, and we'll talk about him shortly. But I don't know enough about Chidi's, the details of Chidi's to answer that with any sort of well, good information. Well, just like guessing from the fact that it was not, it didn't appear anywhere on the docket the week prior to Jen's arrest. It just seems to me like it might have been something that they were trying to hide. So she didn't know or I don't know. And the same thing happened with Kevin Handred. He pled guilty on March 24th. And again, his plea was under seal, didn't appear anywhere on the case docket until later in August. And they both pled guilty to the wire fraud charges. But Kevin Handren had some additional ones like aggravated identity theft, conspiracy to commit money laundering, unlawful distribution and possession with the intent to distribute of cocaine. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and his sentence is April 28th, 2022. Same with Chidi. Handren is tier A. And Chidi was tier one. So Handron isn't the same tier as Jen, which is interesting to me because she wasn't charged with aggravated identity theft or the cocaine thing. But (laughs) that one seems like a special one for Handron. Yeah, I'm excited to get more information on him because that when that's released, that looks like it'll be juicy. Similarly, Shane Hanna pled guilty to eight charges, but he was tier one. So I don't I guess the tiers let's take a step back. The tier submission was like a made up list that the government put forth of level of culpability in their eyes. And so it went from A to one to two to three to four downwards. And Jen was in tier A, which is the top level. The A list. A list. She's Uh, A list. Which was the top level of culpability. 
So I guess just because these people have more charges that they pled guilty to or more charges that they were charged with doesn't mean that they were at a higher tier. It's who was like at the top really running this stuff got put up in a higher level of culpability. But Shane Hanna, I'm just going to go through this quickly. He pled guilty to the conspiracy to commit wire fraud, money laundering, access device fraud. So he apparently sold credit card information onto other people, aggravated identity theft, false statements on a loan and credit application. We've heard about that with Teresa and Joe. (laughs) Arson. He apparently set fire to a BMW that was involved in this somehow. You guys get excited for this future episode because (laughs) this is going to be juicy. Yeah. And then wire fraud. So not just conspiracy to commit wire fraud, but actual wire fraud. And his sentencing is next week. So we might have an update pretty soon. (laughs) Um, Cameron Brewster. Is he someone that we're talking about later? No. No, not in this one. Um, We're going to save him. We might end up Cameron Brewster and uh, Chad Allen. Chad Allen and then what's his name? Holt. We might do a whole episode just on those three because I just think it's going to be a really good Criminal Minds type episode because they're involved in so many things. It's so connected and we'll have so many more details by then. Okay, so Cameron, let's step back. Cameron Brewster, Chad Allen were supposed to go to trial with Jen. They were slated to go to trial and they pled guilty just in February And that's when we made our post on Instagram that stated Jen is her sole defendant going into trial because it's true. So Cameron Brewster pled guilty. Chad Allen pled guilty. Cameron Brewster's tier A. Chad Allen's tier one. These are going to be really interesting to report on once they have their sentence sentence hearing, which is June 6th. Yes. Okay. now let's get into the ones that we actually have sentences for and can give some more background on. And I think you wanted to start with Maddie Cirillo? Yeah. Um, So she was tier four, which is the lowest tier in the government's ranking of culpability with the defendants. And I thought it would be interesting to because I think really looking at some of these people that got caught up in the scheme shows how it didn't... The I mean, I feel like they're almost victims as well, even though they committed a crime. I mean, that's coming out wrong, maybe, but it's just it sounds like some of them had good intentions and they got caught up in the scheme. So Maddie Cirillo is married to another defendant and his name is Derek Larkin. And she actually met him after she answered an ad in Craigslist for a job. She's 28 years old. So she answered a Craigslist ad for Olive Branch Marketing. She has admitted to having an administrative role in the scheme. She made about $30,000 in 10 months. She's, like I said, lowest tier. The possible connection to one of Jen's alleged companies is that the government's allegation that she was assisting people in Utah with actual chargeback work. And she essentially has admitted to that because she pled guilty. She gets this job. She's 28 years old. She's got two kids. And she meets her husband there. And she's doing administrative work. She doesn't have college education. She had gone to cosmetology school, but that didn't work out. And she, I think, had been living with her parents and had had to find a job. And so this is where she was working. So Maddie petitioned to have her sentencing submission, the one that was done on her behalf, to have that sealed. So we don't have that. But we do have the government submission. And just for a couple things off of that real quick, here's what the government in their sentencing submission said that she did. They said, 
She participated in the widespread and sophisticated scheme in which victims all over the country were convinced to invest their entire life savings, drain their retirement funds, and incur tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt based on false promises that victims would earn money through an online business created and managed by Maddie's co-conspirators. So these are the other people that we talked about. The government says there is no such businesses. The victims never earned the money they were promised. Maddie, the defendant's participation in the charged crime, was limited in time and scope She was undoubtedly aware of the seriousness of the scheme after her home was searched in 2017 and after working for several years with individuals who were prosecuted for and convicted of fraud. Instead of finding another way to earn money in 2018, she took on more responsibility, handling victim complaints and dealing with chargebacks. I guess put simply, that's when you are disputing a charge on your credit card because it was fraudulent. So what they were doing was providing information to defeat those chargebacks and saying it wasn't fraud. So the government's essentially saying, look, she knew that this was wrong. She clear, she saw other people getting in trouble for it. So even though it, her participation was limited, she still deserves punishment for this. She's still culpable. Yeah. So she pled guilty pretty early on, and she pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Uh, the government in their submission noted that the applicable guideline range was 57 to 71 months imprisonment. And in the plea agreement from January 11th, 2021, the government stated that the applicable range should have been 41 to 51 months imprisonment but then recommended in here that it be 366 days imprisonment. So what happens is they put in their recommendation. She presumably put in her recommendation, but we can't see it because it's under seal. And then the two attorneys argued it out at the sentencing hearing. So, Ceci, do you... I would like, I feel like part of this uh, transcript from the sentencing hearing is really interesting. Do you want to be the judge or do you want to be... Uh, defense counsel or prosecutor or both or any? <laughs> if if I can be the defendant when we get there, <laughs> if we're going to read that, I, I wanted to read that. I think that's the most yeah, interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I wanted to start at page uh, eight and just do a little bit of that where the court and the defense attorney are speaking. Okay. I could be the court. Be very stern. Of course. <laughs> I like this yeah. judge. Actually, I like judges that interrupt and ask questions. I really, I mm-hmm. I like the act of participation. I don't know if we're going to read this in here, but there was one point where he was like, you didn't really answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where are you starting? Eight, line? Uh, let's start with just line three. Okay. Let's go on to Cirillo. Look, judge. The lead into that, sir, was I read all of this information. And if you have the background with me, you know, I take it very seriously. I've read it all. I know. I thought about it. I have a view. What do you want me to know? Judge, I want you to know that if left to her own devices, I'm not so certain that Miss Cirillo would have obstructed justice. There's no doubt. It's easy to blame the husband. Not blaming the husband. Not blaming the husband. Here's what I'm blaming. This is a young woman who sat during a raid in front of everyone and made her way over to the agents. Not only did she make her way over to the agents and speak to the agents, but she took the agent's contact information. She had an intention that day of following up with the agents. She made contact with the agents on a couple of occasions, I think twice, if I'm not mistaken, before the onslaught came of, you don't need to go talk to the agents. Why would you talk to the agents? You're a low-level nobody. They're not interested in low-level nobodies. And the pressure came from her supervisor, the one she worked for, for a salary, Your Honor, for $30,000 in approximately 10 months she was there. And the pressure came as follows. It came as, you don't have to worry about it. I spoke to my lawyer and my lawyer says it's okay for everybody to come back to work. 
and you don't have to worry about your computer and your cell phone, which the agents took because I'll let it go. I'm going to replace it for you. Judge, it was a chorus because you have to remember that Maddie Cirillo answered an ad in Craigslist. That's how she came to meet all of these people who have appeared in front of you. She answered an ad years back. I thought her husband had also worked there. He did, but she didn't know him at the time. She met her husband when she answered the ad. I see. I kind of just want to do that because it kind of just shows how it starts. Mm -hmm. And then the judge, like I think you mentioned, was really interested in how the sentence would deter. And he acknowledged that she probably would never commit a crime like this again. The judge actually did. But he seemed really interested in deterrence. Her attorney goes on to advocate for her. So what I'm saying to your honor is I'm saying that when she first started, it was clerical. And then her direct supervisor gave her a script. She knew it was wrong. She's going to tell your honor she knew it was wrong. And she chose to do it anyway. That's why she embarked upon criminal activity. I just thought that like would be interesting for people to hear. Yeah. You know, her attorney is being very clear that she knew it was wrong. So her attorney goes on and is really, you know, trying to advocate for her and point things out. So he says, Yes, Your Honor, she helped them do what they did. But remember, she didn't share in those profits. She kept the job going, no doubt. All the while, sir, she has her eye on a different ball. All the while, she's looking to improve herself. She's saving money. She's going to real estate school. And you know what, Judge? Honestly, she's been troubled with this. She wants this. She knows that her real estate license is in jeopardy if she ever wants to sit for the exam. But look at what she did in the last two weeks. In addition to trying to adopt a child, in addition to her volunteer work on behalf of animals. And Judge, none of this was done before, excuse me, after the case started. This was all done by Maddie Cirillo because she cares about other beings. She cares about animals. She cares about a child who got a bad break in life. She does what we would want our daughters to do generally. And I respectfully submit, Your Honor, that these acts that she committed, while they are terribly serious and they help prolong and deepen horrific fraud, Your Honor, they shouldn't define her because she's... And then the court says, I don't think it defines her. The question is, what's an appropriate punishment? So the court's wanting them to get to the point. I thought an interesting point in here as well as the court talking about the restitution and how it's going to be so much that she'll never be able to make it up unless she becomes a hedge fund manager. I saw that, I saw that too. The, the judge is literally like, she's never going to be able to pay this off unless she's a hedge fund manager. The court in this is very, in the transcript, is very concerned. He's like, I'm not concerned about recidivism. The, the court does not, as Sessie said, does not believe that she's going to commit more crimes. The court's concerned. He says, I am concerned about general deterrence and I'm concerned about appropriate punishment. So the court at this point is directing the defense attorney to say, make your arguments about what the appropriate punishment is. But I also keyed in on that because that's one of the things that we've been talking about with Jen Shaw when people are asking, like, what's if she's found guilty, what kind of sentence do you think she's going to get? And because she is a public figure and because the court is clearly very concerned about deterrence, that could really factor into the type of sentence she gets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then the prosecution has a time, a moment to speak as well. It's not as, you know, in depth as her defense counsel was, of course, because, you know, they're not trying to paint a good picture of her. But they, again, reiterate what they recommend the, uh, the sentence to be. And then they say the reason for that is in part because of her relative culpability. If the court looks at, I think, the now 12 defendants charged in the Chidi case. This defendant is pretty squarely defendant number 12 in the ranking order with respect to her role in committing the underlying fraud. So it's a very like even keeled analysis or to me, it's like they understand what her role in it was and they don't want to throw the book at her. But she does deserve some some sentence. Yeah, I thought the government was being very fair in their argument here. OK, so this this is the government. So the government says Mr. Cohen, that was her 
defense attorney, focused a lot on how Ms. Cirillo came to be involved in BizOp, and he's right. She did answer Craigslist ads. She became an appointment setter and a compliance person for Olive Branch Marketing. She had largely administrative roles where, at least in the government's view, she did not have full appreciation for the fraudulent scheme. She met her husband and co-defendant, Derek Larkin, there, but at some point shortly after her employment there, a number of people with whom she worked at Olive Branch were arrested, including Bill Sinclair and Arash Katabshi and others. And that is a fact that the court will hear from the government in a number of these sentencings, because unlike many of the defendants in the Katabshi case, the defendants in the Chidi case knew about the Katabshi case. They knew the government had prosecuted a number of individuals involved in the scheme and had convicted those individuals of committing a number of crimes, either through guilty pleas or through a trial. So I just wanted to point out that that's the fact that, because that's going to be pertinent to Jen Shaw's sentencing if she's found guilty, the fact that it was apparently clear that this was illegal from the other defendants getting sentenced in the previous case. Okay, so she then gets a moment to speak. She stands up in a booth. I'm just going to read a little bit so you get a taste of it. But she says, good afternoon, Your Honor. Thank you for hearing me. I really have been waiting to talk to you. I'm sorry. I just never imagined I would be here. But I just wanted to answer your question because you'd asked me a question at my plea hearing. You asked me, why did I do this? So I just wanted to talk and explain just me. I'm 30 years old. I have two kids. I was a stay-at-home mom for most of the last five years. For the past five years, I have been a stay-at-home mom. I just, as you saw, got hired. Actually, yesterday was my first day at my job, which I have been... I really wanted to be a real estate agent. I actually went and passed the course. I even passed the state exam, but I was denied my license because of my charges. So I'm just, I was really excited about this job because I can still have a career in the industry, even though I can't have my license. So I know that Mark kind of explained a little bit that I was just a young, kind of young. The first company, my first job, my first full-time job ever was the company where I worked and met some of my conspirators. And that was a different company than these companies, but I was there for a year. And then I followed some of my coworkers to the second company. Very shortly after, I had my son in 2016 and I stopped working. I stayed home for two years and raised him and my stepson, who I consider to be my own son. And how I got in here is in 2019, I really wanted to enroll my son into daycare because I just thought it was important. And I wanted him to be socializing and things like that. So we just could not afford that at the time with one income. So I was looking for work and my supervisor at this company, well... I knew him from my first ever full-time job. That's where I met him. And he called me while he offered me to work as his secretary, which is how I became at this company. And I was just be clerical, administrative, and answer the phones and things like that. But I was given a full speech by at least three of my managers when I got there that because they did know about this other case and... The court, you're talking about Olive Branch. Yeah. And I was told that this is such a great program. It's a different program. The person that designed the program even talked to me and said that people are successful They just have to do exactly this. But that's where my script and things came into picture. But obviously, I'm not saying that I never I found out that this wasn't right and they weren't doing right by these people. But I just felt like it was none of my business. It was it was convenient. I could work from home whenever I want. It was an easy job. And that was. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I'll just stop there. So you could just get the sense that she's really trying to advocate for herself and explain how this all came to be. And as Angela mentioned before, it does seem like. You know, she she had a gut instinct that something was wrong, but she really wasn't the one calling the shots and kind of was just led into this because she needed money and needed a good job. And I think that's really human. I think we've all been in situations where maybe something feels wrong or maybe you think something might be wrong, but you're not sure. And then it's like she's friends with these people. She married one of them. And I I just she 
I'm like she's explaining to the judge made a series of ethical compromises which is the court said was a mistake. This is this is a very human when you, when you're reading this it's easy to kind of see okay I, I get how she made some of these decisions. Yeah, so then I mean even even if she, you know, even even taking that into consideration she still got a sentence. So she was given time served and supervised release of 3 years, one of which had to be spent at home in in in-home detention. And then she was also ordered to pay $550,000, which is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And also she has, she's convicted of a felony. She can't vote. She can't own a gun. And then there's, you know, all the other things that come with a felony conviction. When she applies for jobs, if they ask her if she's been convicted of a felony, they're, I mean, they're allowed to ask that and she has to tell the truth. So there's a lot that goes that that follows you around the rest of your life and then plus the over a million dollar over half a million dollars in restitution so so much money that's way more than i thought they would give her but it is what it is cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating they always have their customers in mind Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So the next one we're going to talk about is actually Maddie's husband, Derek Larkin. Derek Larkin is listed as tier three by the government. So one tier above what they listed Maddie in the culpability scheme um, or on the scheme of culpability. He is or was 36 year old. 36 years old when he got arrested. According to the government submission, after the resolution of the Katabshi case, the HSI executed a search warrant at the company that they were working for, the CDC Alliance office in Inglewood, New Jersey, and they got 
documents and electronic devices from people who were present, including Larkin. And obviously, as we talked about, his wife, Maddie Cirillo. Evans collected during that search revealed that he worked as a salesperson at the company with Larkin primarily setting appointments and obtaining information from the victim's in obtaining them, sorry, in obtaining the victim's financial information, he worked closely in connection with another co-defendant we're going to talk about, Di Paola. Following that search, Larkin remotely deleted the data on his cell phone before that cell phone was accessed by HSI, thereby destroying the evidence, which is bad. <laughs> um, and then shortly after HSI discovered this, a cooperating witness made a consensual recording of Larkin in which he acknowledged he had deleted the contents of that cell phone. Larkin's participation in the charged crimes, according to the government, was extensive in its duration as Larkin worked as a salesperson at both Olive Branch Marketing and Consumer Shield, where he perpetrated both the business opportunity scheme and the debt relief scheme for years prior to Olive Branch. And they also point out that he knew that his former employers had been charged criminally, so he knew that's their evidence that he knew that what they were doing was wrong. Yeah, they they point out that he attended the Katabchi trial, so he was there, he should have known that what he was engaged in was probably illegal. The government stated that the applicable guideline range for Larkin is 151 to 188 months imprisonment. They said that in the plea agreement, they put 92 to 115 months imprisonment and that they recommend that he's sentenced to 92 months of imprisonment. So the, the lower in that range. So now you know what the government's saying his involvement was and what sentence he's facing. And so he submitted, along like his attorney, and he submitted a sentencing submission, really working hard to explain the circumstances of how he came to be in the situation. And then they also included a large number of letters from his friends and family talking about him as a person, which are interesting. And that's, I mean, it really does help humanize a criminal defendant. So this is what they put in his sentencing submission. So from 2016 through 2019, Derek Larkin worked for telemarketing companies and aided his superiors in perpetrating a host of frauds involving business opportunity schemes. I mean, he already he pled guilty to this. So he's accepting responsibility. While he is in no way deserving of a minimal role adjustment and without detracting from his responsibility for the part he played in this conspiracy, the defendant was no leader or manager and made little money for his efforts, as opposed to many of his co-defendants, including Anthony Chidi, Joseph Chiaccio, or Chiaccio? I don't know how we're going to say that Chacho one. is how. Chacho? Yeah. And Joseph Manetto. Indeed, while Mr. Larkin's sentencing guidelines utilize a $1.5 million to $3.5 million loss figure, he profited little from his crimes. He worked on commission, earning less than $150,000 for his participation during these years. And then he goes on to explain how the other co-defendants are probably more culpable than he is and got more of a benefit than he did. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because he says, unlike co-defendant Cameron Brewster, Kevin Hardin, Chad Allen, and Shane Hanna, Mr. Larkin did not run sales floors at these fraudulent marketing companies. Instead, he was employed as a salesperson who began a sales pitch before passing victims off to a closer who completed the sale. If the sale is completed, then that's when he received a commission. So his, and again, this is from his defense submission. So then they go into... After accepting his culpability and discussing some of the details and then placing his culpability in relation to some of the other defendants, then they go into his personal characteristics and history. 
So they've attached nearly 30 character letters in support of their submission, reflecting the significant and meaningful role that Mr. Larkin has played in the lives of friends, family members, and the recipients of his good deeds and charity. It would be impossible to include a letter from every individual whom Mr. Larkin has positively influenced. So still the myriad letters on which we do remark paint a consistent picture of a great father, husband, and friend, always thinking of others before himself and just really trying to humanize him. So they give some background. So it says Mr. Larkin, it was around, a lot of it's redacted, but then it goes on to say, because as Ceci has explained in previous episodes, is a sort of sentencing guidelines. And so that goes into the pre-sentence investigation report, which is confidential. So we don't have that, but that kind of puts you in like what category. And so if you have extensive criminal history, that definitely gets put in your pre-sentence investigation report, and that moves you up in the ranking for the type of punishment you should receive. But so they, they want to explain some of this. So without any familiar support, he slid downhill quickly. He violated a restraining order. He stole a snowblower from his mother's house, resulting in his arrest, and eventually a sentence of 18 months imprisonment after he violated his probation. He admitted to stealing a weed whacker, tools, and bicycles while he was homeless. He's he sold to a pawn shop in New Jersey. He had been previously convicted of possessing a weapon. And then approximately $10,000 worth of ecstasy, marijuana, and cocaine. Wow, that's a lot. He was convicted of assaulting an individual at a party he mistakenly believed had fought for a friend. And he was convicted in the Northern District of Virginia of possessing with the intent to distribute cocaine. And law enforcement seized 800 grams of the narcotic from his vehicle, and he was sentenced to 70 months incarceration. So one of the reasons why I'm mentioning all that is because it's when we tell you what sentence he got, that helps explain why he got that sentence. They go on and they talk about Mr. Larkin's horrible childhood and his poor early relationship with his parents, at least cause one positive with all of his faults. He has become a truly incredible father, the kind of father he wished he had growing up. And they talk about some of the letters so just to give like an example of what is these submissions are like, it's just basically <laughs> reflecting back on the person and giving your your like best example of how they were a great person to you. So one example of this is from a friend. In my late teens, I had an argument with my parents. They did not kick me out of the house, but I do not want to stay home because I was so upset. I wanted a place to stay for a day or two to clear my head. I called Mr. Larkin and he let me stay for a few days at his home. He said, stay here as long as you need to. I was very thankful for his hospitality and concern. He would talk with me about the argument and give his best advice. He also provided food for me, me feeling guilty and feeling like an inconvenience. I asked him if I could buy us dinner one night. He denied the offer and said, you got a lot on your mind and we have plenty of food here. His kindness and sensitivity to my situation is something I'll remember and appreciate forever. So that's just like a snippet. You know, you just want to like get the best deeds you've ever done in your life in front of the court. Yeah. I mean, they even go into detail about the efforts that they've you know, he's made to foster animals with his wife and everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why not? Like, why not throw it all in? You know, and they point out that given his criminal history, finding employment has been a consistent challenge. They do say that, you know, pointing following his arrest in this case, Mr. Larkin being working in construction and is on his way to becoming a member of the Iron Workers Union. So that is a big deal. Also, if you can show the court that even as you're awaiting your charges, that you are working, you're making efforts and you're being a contributing member of society. It's hard to say that you're going to be a contributing member of society if you haven't made any efforts to do that prior to your sentencing hearing. So that's a, you know important to point out. So should we talk about how much time he got? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, so he pled guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud. We just went over all of his stuff that was submitted. He was sentenced to 72 months in prison, which is six years, and five years of supervised release. He was also ordered to pay $3.5 million in restitution. That's a lot. Beyond. Yeah. Beyond. Like, so much. But, I mean, the government says it was a huge scheme, so... So he does have post-sentencing submissions, but I think we're going to talk about those after, like, at the very end, because it'll they'll make more sense when you hear about, I think, some of these other defendants. Okay, so let's move on to the next. So next is Joseph De Paola. He worked closely with Larkin. So in his sentencing, uh, and I'll just jump straight to the transcript, they go through and they discuss some of the details, and then... The judge says, okay, I have the consent preliminary order forfeiture ordering that the defendant forfeit $400,000 and he's signing it. So the judge, apparently he had $400,000 to forfeit. So that's going back over and that'll end up being paid out in restitution to victims. So I'm starting on line 12. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I won't reiterate everything I said in the papers, which I think paint a portrait of a young man who went astray, who was manipulated into going astray. You mean he committed crimes. Isn't that what you mean? Yeah. All right. That's exactly what I mean. Stole money from old people. There's no question about that. Not only that, he wasn't just a salesman. He was a closer. He didn't run the sales floors to his credit, but they brought him in. He was the sandman. When somebody was reluctant, he was a skilled salesman and he closed the deal. Well, he's a pretty articulate guy. He has a learning disability, so he didn't do well in school and had trouble getting real jobs. His AA sponsor, you know, after years of drug addiction, he was brought out to it and led to the light through AA and his sponsor. His sponsor was Holt and took advantage of him. So that, when, like I, so this is just, when I was reading this transcript, I was like, oh my God, Holt is the guy that we talked about who's in, he's in tier A, right? He's in tier A in the other trial. He's already been sentenced. He's already been sentenced. So the fact that this guy is AA sponsor, so he's, is like, okay, yeah, so you're sober now. So come work at this company with me. And it ends up being this is just awful. That's just mm-hmm. awful. I felt really bad about this. Okay, so then the court points out that he attended the Katabshi trial, so he clearly knew. The court is also pointing out he was the closer. So that, you know, and there's a reluctant person who is like, oh, I don't want to give you my life savings for this business opportunity scheme. He was the one that got called in to convince them to do it. So that's mm-hmm. bad. Really bad. <laughs> um. So in response to the court pointing out that he attended the Katabshi trial and should have known exactly how bad and illegal this stuff was, his defense attorney says he didn't really hear the government's case. What he heard was one of the co-defendants testifying in his own defense and being cross-examined by the government. So I don't, I think, yeah, he was willfully blind to what they were doing. The legality of it, you know, he was assured it was legal. He wanted to believe that. He was making more money than he'd ever made in his life. His family owned a bagel store growing up. Sometimes the bagel business was bleak and they struggled. Sometimes it was better. He had worked as a landscaper. He had not done well in school because of his learning disability. He was using a skill that he had in a bad way that he knew was bad. But I hope in thinking about the entire person that his overall moral culpability will come through as somewhat less typical in the scheme as a whole. And I think that's actually reflected. So, I mean, his lawyer is doing an admirable job of trying to ameliorate some of the bad facts. So the government speaks as well and, you know, doesn't reiterate what's in the submission because they were like, we've it's in the submission, but says that the guidelines recommend 46 to 57 months. 
and recommend that. So then he gets a chance to speak and he says, I'll just read it. It's very short. Good afternoon, Your Honor. I'd like to start by sincerely apologizing to the victims that I defrauded. The last date that I was physically addicted to drugs and alcohol was May 1st of 2018. I do consider that date my sobriety date. However, at that point, I was still engaging in the same selfish and destructive behaviors that led me into heroin addiction in the first place. When I started working at Alliance, which is the company at issue, I was walking into a place where at the time I thought I was surrounding myself with a group of men living a sober lifestyle. I built relationships with these men through Alcoholics Anonymous. They became my friends as well as my mentors, one of them being Ryan Holt, who we mentioned is a a co-defendant, who I referred to as Coach. He was taking me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That did require us having absolute trust with each other. I saw a group of people with years of sobriety, something at the time I couldn't imagine achieving. I saw them living lifestyles that I also desired, one with materialistic things, families, kids, and that was something that I strived for. I thought in order to, excuse me, I'm sorry, Your Honor, and I I think he he cried. He said, in the court says, no, sir, this is difficult for everybody. I assure you, less so for me than for your family, but none of these things are easy. As your attorney has so articulately said, there are a lot of factors that go into this. It's hard. Take your time, whatever you need. And we didn't read this part from earlier in the transcript, but when his attorney was arguing initially, the court was like, you know, no, the court really sounded like he wasn't having it. It was basically saying, no, he's getting more time than that, than what you're recommending, blah, blah, blah. But I do think that this really seemed to soften the court some. So he continues, these things are what I thought I needed in order to be living a financially stable as well as sober life. Looking back at this time in my life, I was missing the core principles of what Alcoholics Anonymous actually stood for. Just because I wasn't using drugs or alcohol didn't mean that I was truly sober at all. I was dishonest and deceitful in every aspect of my life, most importantly towards the victims of my crime. At the time, being financially stable was something I thought I needed in order to to progress my life. I've come to realize that the stability in my life comes from my faith and my family, not through my financial gains. Today, I aspire to live a life of honesty, integrity, humility, awareness, most importantly, service to others. These are some of the principles, among others, that I have been taught and implemented into my life and my recovery to practice true sobriety. Thank you for your time, Your Honor. And that was the end. And then what did the court give him? Yeah, the court really took into consideration the fact that he was led into the scheme by his a sponsor. And I I think his statement that he read was good. So let's see his sentence. He pled guilty to count one and was sentenced to 30 months and then supervised release of three years. And then he was ordered to pay restitution in the amount of $1.5 million. Okay. So next is Joseph. How are you saying his last name? Chacho. Chacho. And he p- pled guilty in March 2021 to conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Do you want to go through his the government submission on him? Yeah. So he's 30 years old and he was tier one, which is the tier right below Jinshaw and Stu Chains. So the government says that Chacho ran a sales floor and employed several individuals, among whom were the co-defendants, Maddie Cirillo, Derek Larkin, and Joseph DiPaola, who we've already talked about. So this is He's he was in charge and he ran the sales floor. He was arrested on November 20, 2019, and then he pled guilty to wire fraud conspiracy. So essentially, he was running the sales floor and he's the one that employed the people. And he has ostensibly much higher culpability for these crimes. Now, he had a lot of extenuating circumstances. So after he was arrested, he was in a motorcycle accident 
and he lost the use of his legs. So he is now in a wheelchair. Not only that, so he lo- he became paralyzed from the waist down, but also developed an opioid addiction that affected his recovery and also had brain trauma. And they claim that his personality changed and he has mental difficulties. Yeah. So his, his defense attorney says, this is from the sentencing transcript, that Mr. Chaccio, he is a paraplegic, but that's only part of the issues he deals with. He is subject to frequent medical conditions, bed sores and the like that develop rapidly, can become life-threatening quickly when they develop and require hospitalization or 24-hour treatment. So he's currently in a facility now that is trying to address the bed sores he developed. He's been there for many months. The wounds are terrible. They're not healing. Uh, the doctor thinks he will require surgery in order to repair them. The hope is that he can come become capable of living outside of a facility. He's not able to do that today. So the judge, the judge looks at all of this and says, I must say, not only the crime itself concerns me, but that's over. I really doubt that he's going to go back to anything like that. I don't think individual deterrence is a real issue. The general deterrence might be punishment is, although he seems to be punished enough through other means, that is paraplegia, I don't mean to make a connection there, but his drug use does concern me. Apparently, there's easy access or relatively easy access to drugs at these facilities. I'm not quite sure how to deal with that. I'm concerned if he considers his drug use. So the judge here is talking about, again, the general deterrence. So that's what these sentences will tell the general public about these types of schemes and hopefully deter other people from participating in these schemes or from starting these types of businesses. Can I flag, though, so something from the government submission and his submission. In his submission, they recommended time served and two-year supervised release, and the government actually seemed to agree and noted that it was because of his, his circumstances, except they wanted more than two years they were like time served and then maybe more than two years of supervised release. But and and they kept saying, like, we want to we want we want everyone to know that absent his extraordinarily severe medical and mental health issues as a result of the motorcycle accident, an incarceratory sentence within the applicable guidelines range would have been appropriate. So they're saying, like, we don't want you to think that we don't think he should have received like a really strong sentence. But because he has these issues, we're, we're not going to, again, throw the book at him. <laughs> they're, they're being very reasonable, I think, in their recommendation to the judge. Yeah. And it does seem like the court really took into consideration the fact that if he is a, you know, a ward of the state, the state would be paying for all of his medical care, which is incredibly expensive and which would require enormous resources that, quite frankly, the prisons just don't have. So it would almost be punishing the government more, it seems, like they were essentially arguing to say it's not helping anybody. It's not to make all of this the government's responsibility and put the prison in a situation where it just it does not have the medical facilities to handle this person. So his statement to the court, he says, I would like to start by sincerely apologizing to all the victims for my actions and decisions. I want to take full responsibility for my actions and have accepted involvement in this crime. I'm not the same man I was two years ago. I've changed both physically and mentally due to my accident. I have been stripped of any dignity I had left as a person. Not only have I lost the ability to walk or care for myself physically, but the path that I chose brought me here today. I was greedy. I was arrogant. I was selfish. I've had a lot of time to think and be with my thoughts. And the pain that I caused the victims is immeasurable. I want to make my wrongdoings right and show the court that I'm capable of doing so. Part of that means apologizing today. And part of it is recognizing that an apology is just the beginning because being responsible for bad behavior means you don't repeat it. I want the court to know that I'm committed to doing the right thing by moving forward. 
I am the father of three young children, Your Honor. I'm also a husband and a son. My actions have affected them already so much, and their lives have been forever changed. A huge motivation to work so hard at rehabilitating from my accident are my wife and kids. I'm determined to become the husband and father they both deserve. As Your Honor knows, I've had issues with addiction in the past, but I've also shown that I can overcome it. I was sober for five years until shortly before my accident, and I'm willing to work extremely hard at maintaining my sobriety moving forward. I attend AA meetings currently and average about five times a week. Between doing step work, fellowship, and working with a sponsor, the meetings are incredibly helpful for me in achieving and maintaining long-term sobriety. I'd like to finally thank the court for your time, invested in this case, and the opportunity to address the court today. I'm deeply sorry and remorseful for my actions and hope that I can make this right. Thank you for your time, Your Honor. So, I mean, this really is when we've read, I think, three, three or four of these now, and it really is them essentially like pleading for their life to the mm-hmm. court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then in this one, he ended up receiving time served and supervised reliefs for two years, but has to pay restitution of $3.5 million. And as a reminder, he was tier one, which was just under Jen's tier. So that seems fair to me. Do you want to briefly just say what time served is? Because we made a post about it and we got questions about it. Oh, I mean, that's essentially saying the time that he's spent in custody will be all that he has to spend. So that he doesn't, that's, it's time served. You've already done, it's basically essentially saying you've already done your time, whatever that was. Yeah. I think the question was if they're released on bail, which I think all of these defendants were, and they weren't, you know, locked up for the past three years yeah. before they received their sentence. Like, how does that work? And I think you had told me that even if they spent like a night in jail, that's time served. Yeah. Time, like sometimes people are, you know, it takes two months for them to bond out or whatever. But in this case, the fact that he had been in custody at all, they were able to procedurally say time served, I believe, is how that worked for this one. So he's he's not in jail. He has been on Twitter. He has responded back to Ronald Richards about some things. He's offered to show his plea agreement to show them how wrong he is. And he claims that he did not work for Jen Shaw on Twitter. So he says he never even did business with her. We'll see. So, yeah, that's what we know of Joey Chachio. Now, just briefly, because he was tier one and got time served, uh, Larkin was has submitted some post-sentencing submissions because he believes this to be unfair. He says, while my co-conspirator, this is back to Larkin, who again is the husband of Maddie Cirillo. So he's like, while my co-conspirators were buying cars, vacations, and designer clothes, I lived paycheck to paycheck off what I made in the business to support my family. However, I received a longer sentence in prison than them. These men were highly involved in benefiting greatly off the victim's money while also having criminal records. I understand that my unrelated record must be taken into consideration, but justice can't be served when the top tier of co-conspirators receive less time in prison than the bottom tier. I was also given an astronomical order of restitution despite only making less than $25,000. And then his wife also submits another letter, which we'll, we'll post a bunch of this stuff on our Patreon. But it's essentially saying, hey, this isn't fair. I know he's in a wheelchair, but I'm in jail for the next six years and I can't see my kids and he's out and posting on Twitter. So it's not fair. So he's that's basically his post sentencing arguments. Okay, so that was all the sentencing submissions we have. So we're going to do another episode on Ryan Holt because he was so involved and there's so many interesting details with that. And it gives us a much better picture, I think, of 
what was going on as related to Jen Shaw. He's so much higher up on the chain. He's also involved with operations in Utah. So we're going to do a separate episode on that. But I do think that looking at these lower level people and seeing how their attorneys argued on their behalf, what was taken into consideration with their sentencing and how the process works is really helpful for understanding how these types of things could affect Jen Shaw when her case goes to trial and then if she is convicted and goes through sentencing. Mm hmm. I just want to flag, though, I think if we do another episode on this, it won't come out until maybe the summer because a lot of the high level people are being sentenced in June. So I really want to wait until we get all that and make like a really good overall episode to put out there with final sentences. And like by then we'll have everyone's sentences before Jen's trial. Yeah. And then we posted on our Instagram for those who don't follow, but we did not get an update on Stuart Smith's sentencing. It was scheduled for March 3rd, and we didn't see any indication that it was moved or any order released yet. So not really sure. Not really sure what happened there. But as as we've noted before, he did plead guilty. And that I think that's that's a that's a sentence I'm really looking forward to seeing just to see how it'll compare should Jen be found guilty. Anything else? No, just thank you again to our uh, patrons. We downloaded hundreds of pages of documents to read through, and we really appreciate your support and helping us fund the purchase of those documents so we can give you these really detailed podcasts. And just thank you again for your support for that. Yes, thank you. All right. Until the next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Bravo Docket is part of the Acast Creator Network. Acast.